This is the Israel Connection, coming to you on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming on the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Now, my blood has reached boiling point many times in the last two and a half weeks since the atrocity that was committed by Hamas against Israeli civilians in southern Israel. Whether it is the ABC parroting Hamas's media releases or Greens leader Adam Bant standing by anti-Israel protesters at a rally screaming Palestine will be free from the river to the sea and uttering his nonsensical call for Israel to negotiate with terrorists or Muslims in this country with their widespread animus toward Israel proving that this is fundamentally a religious war or just plain ordinary Australians who get sucked into the pro-Palestinian propaganda machine. Despite the ongoing horrendous situation with over 200 hostages trapped in the clutches of Hamas, today I'm going to be speaking with two people who are significant actors in the life of Israel. The media is dominated by Israel's war with Hamas, but today I want to talk about how Israel is moving forward despite the burden of the slaughter of innocent men, women and children in our minds. Later I'll be speaking live with Dr. Gedalia Afterman, who's the head of Asia Policy Program of the Abba Eben Institute for Diplomacy and Foreign Relations. Now, to begin with today, let me introduce Brent Nagtegal, who works at Hebrew University in Jerusalem in collaboration with the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. Welcome to the program, Brent. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Uh, sorry for the delay today, but uh, technical difficulties, as they say in the, in the business. No worries. <laughs> now, Brent, uh, before we start, I'd like to speak about the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, whose spokesperson, Ma Tiri, Ma Tiri, was instrumental in setting up this interview with you. Now, consistently ranked amongst the top universities worldwide, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem is Israel's premier academic and research institution, serving 23,000 students from 90 countries. It trains the public, scientific, education and professional leadership of Israel and the world. The Hebrew University is a leader in bringing about changes in the world community, in agriculture, environmental equality, public health, archaeology of course, science and technology. Now producing a third of Israel's civilian research, it is ranked 12th worldwide in biotechnology patent filings and commercial development. With a world-class faculty researching the cultural, spiritual and intellectual traditions of Judaism and other cultures, the Hebrew University expands the boundaries of knowledge for the benefit of all mankind. The Hebrew University was founded in 1918 by visionaries including Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, Martin Buber and Chaim Weizmann. In the last decade, faculty and alumni have won seven Nobel Prizes and a Fields Medal. Anyone interested in studying there should note that it has exchange programs with Monash and Melbourne Universities and RMIT and that scholarships and special awards are available. So back to you, Brent. So how did you end up living in Jerusalem excavating for, uh, for biblical relics? What, what made you do that uh, with your life? Yeah, so it's um, a bit of a twisty story, probably different to some of uh, your audience of what they would take if they wanted to study or, or research at Hebrew University. Um, I actually grew up in Australia, um, in uh, Western Australia, born in Margaret River in the southwest corner, grew up in Perth, uh, moved to Tasmania, actually, uh, when I was 15, 16. And then I actually traveled to the United States to to study at Armstrong College in Oklahoma. 
And this this college had a, a partnership with Hebrew University and sent students over to Jerusalem every year to volunteer on archaeological excavations. And so I did that starting in 2006. And then ever since that time, I've been coming over to Israel for, for excavations in Jerusalem, specifically working alongside Hebrew University professors uh, on their team as a volunteer and then as a supervisor and now more as a, a researcher continuing on with this, uh, the excavations themselves and then the, the, the research that continues after the digs at Hebrew University. So can you explain uh, to our audience what is the mission of the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology? So we work really closely with Hebrew University. This is going back till 1968-69 with uh, Professor Benjamin Mazar. He's the former president of Hebrew University, one of archaeology's uh, founders in Israel, really a father figure. Uh, we worked alongside him on, at the big southern wall of the, the Temple Mount excavations. These were huge excavations that opened up just after Israel uh, won the Six-Day War, and now excavations in the old city of Jerusalem, and then the really ancient city of Jerusalem and the city of David, south of the Temple Mount Wall, could begin. And so this partnership has gone on for over 50 years now. So we send student volunteers, the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology sends student volunteers to dig alongside uh, these uh, Hebrew University professors, adding you know, half, half or so of the team of diggers, and then we also fund the excavations as well. Uh, monetarily to make sure that they can happen. This is a very expensive exercise to dig in Jerusalem just because of logistical difficulties of excavating a living city as opposed to the ancient cities that aren't inhabited throughout Israel, and so it costs a lot of money. Um, but the Armstrong uh, Institute of Biblical Archaeology is happy to continue this collaboration. And you know now we're getting into more of the, the scientific study with Hebrew University, publishing final reports of the excavations. And then the, the Institute... Uh, uh, Armstrong Institute basically takes a lot of those final reports that are kind of using language that might be a bit more uh, less understandable, less accessible to the layman and kind of puts it in a more popular terminology so that the regular readers, the regular people uh, can understand what's being discovered. So during uh, the work period that you've been there, uh, you've worked alongside some, uh, some rather famous names. Um, and perhaps you can uh, tell us uh, one of these uh, people in particular who uh, only passed away uh, very recently, um, whom you worked alongside. But there are other famous names. And uh, do you want to perhaps uh, give us a little bit of a, a picture of who are sure. some of the major players in, uh, in this area? Yeah, so from, from Hebrew University, um, the Benjamin Mazar excavated, as I said, in the 60s and 70s, and then really taking over the mantle in ancient Jerusalem um, was Yigal Shalom. Uh, he excavated in the 80s in the city of David, massive excavations, again, Hebrew University professor. And then it was Benjamin Mazar's granddaughter, uh, Dr. Elat Mazar, uh, who me uh, personally, who I've worked with very closely since 2006, she headed up the excavation of King David's palace starting in 2005 and continuing to 2008. And then she moved slightly further northward, about 100 meters northward uh, in the ancient city. And now we're just south of the, the Temple Mount wall by about 50 or 60 meters and what's known as the Ophel area. This is the area of of Jerusalem's ancient royal administration. This is where the Palace of Solomon would be, the, the, the armory that Solomon built. Uh, and then going forward from that time, 
this place was this area was heavily uh, used for administration in ancient Israel and ancient Judah till its destruction at the hand of the Babylonians in 586. And so, uh, while we do excavate certainly the upper layers going, you know, from the Muslim periods through the Byzantine period on down through the Roman period, getting to Herod's time. Um, the period of, uh, and all of that is documented well, of course, in the most proficient, efficient manner at the same time. Um, then we get down to the biblical period, which is the most intense focus, getting back to Jerusalem's earliest roots. And these these sites that we're excavating, whether it's the the area to the north of the city of David, city of David's a very ancient city, even predating David's time. Um, but just north of that, the, where, where this very large building is, that Dr. Mazar called the Palace of David, and then going forward into this Ophel area, I mean, we're finding relics, uh, discoveries from this biblical period, massive buildings from the time period, David, Solomon, that continued in use because Jerusalem was never destroyed fully until the Babylonian period in the, in the, early, in the early 6th century. So you've got about 400 years, 350 years of, of use of these structures with refurbishments res, uh, and uh, throughout that time. But really, we're, we're capturing the biblical period from the time of David all the way through to the time of Jeremiah. And so notably, the finds are associated with that time. Most, most of them are going to be associated with the period of destruction of this building. And we do find, you know, the, the 586 destruction, massive burn layers, charred remains. And this, the most famous individual from this time from the Bible is Jeremiah. And the, I guess the most interesting discoveries outside of the structures themselves are these little seal impressions that we've been discovering over the past 20 years or so, uh, or 18 years or so in Jerusalem. And these are seal impressions. These are the personal signatures, like a stamp that you would put on a, in the Middle Ages, you know, you would have your scroll, you'd roll it up and you get a bit of wax and then you would put your ring on it that would stamp your name so everybody knows who it is uh, that wrote the document and who's on whose authority it was. And we've found several biblical personalities from the book of Jeremiah, uh, a couple of individuals mentioned in the same verse, actually in Jeremiah 38 and verse one. These were discovered in 2005 and 2008 in the city of David. These were the myth, one, two of the four men that were responsible for putting Jeremiah in prison. And we have their first and last names. We found them in the destruction layer of Jerusalem. So these are there's no one out there that's going to dismiss that these are the actual people in the Jeremiah narrative. And then actually going back another 150 years or so, we found in 2009 and 10 in excavations on the Ophel with Dr. Elot Mazar, uh, seal impressions belonging to King Hezekiah himself. This is the personal seal impression of King Hezekiah, probably the second most famous or third most famous king after David, Solomon, and then Hezekiah. He was the one that was there during the time of the massive Assyrian invasion uh, of Israel uh, and of Judah and Israel. And then he's the one that stayed in Jerusalem. He's the one that besought God for help. And we find his seal impression. It says, belonging to Hezekiah, Ahaz, his father, king of Judah. And so when this, this is probably the most dramatic discovery. It's the first time that a personal seal impression of any biblical king has been found in a controlled scientific excavation in the right layer amongst other stuff from King, King Hezekiah's time in the window of his rule. And here we've found the seal impression belonging to him. So I would say those discoveries of personal figures or of individual figures from from the bible showing that it's an accurate historical document going back 3000 years is a, an incredible uh incredible uh discoveries and one that testify to the the nature of jerusalem 
as a city. And here we are digging what would technically be called East Jerusalem. This was belonging to the, or at least the area that Jordan occupied up until 1967, areas that opened up after Israel takes over this area. And, and here we are in this location, finding the ancient core of Jerusalem, a biblical Jerusalem with same personalities matching the biblical text. So uh, from what you've been saying to us so far, um, it uh, would definitely appear that uh, you're uh, a maximalist rather than a minimalist when it comes to the uh, interpretation of uh, biblical archaeology. Now, perhaps you can explain for listeners that uh, this this uh, subject uh, of archaeology, you'd think that just digging things out of the ground wouldn't be terribly controversial, but uh, in, in fact it is. So what are some of the disputations that... Uh, affect the way people interpret what comes out of the ground? Yeah, certainly it depends on what school you're trained in. I mean, and this is the result of, of, of um, intellectual work on the Bible that's gone on for the past 150 years, uh, starting in Germany and then elsewhere about when the Bible was written. And if we give the Bible a late date of writing, how is it possible that these late authors are going to be so accurate with details that they're describing from a thousand years earlier, or 500 years earlier? And so it's out of that school then that comes this idea that, you know, we'll, we'll not treat the Bible innocent until proven guilty. It'll be the opposite. Let's just take, let's just say they're nice, nice fairy tales, myths that probably happen or they're a memory of, of something. Um, and perhaps it's even been fabricated. And then we'll go from there and we'll let the artifacts from the ground then dictate whether the Bible is true or not. Uh, I take the other approach. I take the approach that we have a historical document, the best one that we have that describes the land of Israel from the time period of the Bible and well, from that time period. And then we, we go from there and we allow that then to help not necessarily interpret our discoveries, but at least help us find where we should dig, what should we should expect to find. And then there's no fabrication of the artifacts themselves. And so what comes out of the ground then comes out of the ground. And so I think what is really interesting with this is, you know, there, there has been this debate in biblical, the minimalist school, we'll call it, as opposed to the maximalist school. I don't say I'm from the maximalist school. I say I'm from the literalist school. I, I say, you know, I'm going to read the Bible as, as the best, name a better historical document or a document from the time that's going to describe the events and treat it as innocent until proven guilty. And I would say that this debate about the Bible as a narrative or when was it written down or from what point is it accurate, this window of time has actually gone back and back and back and back between on both sides. Like you can't find a biblical minimalist in Israel that doesn't believe that the Bible is an accurate historical record from about 2,850 years ago. So about 850 BC onwards, doesn't matter what school you're in. Minimalists, maximalists, they all agree it's accurate. Now, the debate over this, this period or the debate from the, in the schools now between, let's say, the maximalists and minimalists gets back to David and Solomon. Is David, as the Bible describes, is Solomon's kingdom, as the Bible describes, or is it a glorification of, yes, these people existed, um, but perhaps they're not as big as what the Bible describes. And on that point, we just have to say, well, let's let archaeology then voice itself. Let's give the excavations and the archaeologists that excavate in these digs an opportunity to let the stones speak as much as they can. Stones, are, they're kind of worthless by themselves unless you have a historical document to attach to them that helps you describe what happened there. 
Stones are only going to tell you, and, and the artifacts are only going to tell you, this building was so big at its, for what remains, and it'll tell you the date from which that, which that building was built. And so if we're digging in Jerusalem and we have large buildings from the 10th century BCE, the time period of David and Solomon, and then we are we going to allow those stones to have a voice and say we have found David and Solomon's Jerusalem, or do we fight over the dating? And that's what the fight is about now. Are these buildings from the 10th century that we find, nobody disagrees with them being massive, <laughs> but are they from the 10th century or are they from 75 years later? That's all the debate is. And I would say it's the minimalists that have had this shifting narrative. I mean, if you go back to the early 90s, there were some in the minimalist school that said that David didn't exist ever, wasn't even a historical personality. And then you had a, a very important discovery in the north of Israel at a site called Tel Dan, where they actually found uh, an inscription dating from about 100 years after David, written by the Syrians, an enemy of the, the kingdom of Judah, that says that the house of David existed and that there was a king in Jerusalem on the house of, from the house of David. So at that point, it's the minimalists then that have to change their debate. They have to say, okay, David existed, but he's certainly not as big as what the Bible describes. And then I would say over the past 20 years or 15 years, there's been massive blowback to even that idea with the discoveries uh, using carbon datings to back up the pottery dating that is usually used historically to date sites that push the pottery, uh, will keep the pottery back in the 10th century from the time of David. Several sites have now been uncovered in Israel and Judah that not just with pottery, but with carbon dates support a 10th century construction for these cities. It's interesting that uh, the carbon dating uh, is best, uh, reels the best results when they find organic matter like uh, olive pips and things like that. That's uh, what apparently uh, really nails down uh, when these relics uh, are dated back to. Now, I'm going to ask you for a rain check, um, Brent, because this topic is, uh, is is too big for the time we have available. Uh, I shared with you uh, an article um, just bef before we got on air uh, from the New Yorker in search of King David's lost empire, which uh, I guess I would assume you've read, being, uh, <laughs> being uh, a maven in your field of, of archaeology, and it's, um, for me, it was a real eye-opener, and I think there's a lot of in very interesting history and revelations that this article covers. But just um, to wrap things up in the time we have available, I've got one thing I wanted to ask you, which is also an area of controversy. Now, Israelis take pride in the archaeological wonders that dot Israel's landscape, which prove the ancient historical Jewish connection to Eretz Israel. Now, Palestinians, on the other hand, claim that they are the native inhabitants of the land, but don't have much to show for it. Now, do you encounter much negation of the significance of the 3,000-year-old Jewish association with the land? Yeah, I would say, actually, no. Not in <laughs> academic circles. Um, it, it's it's a it's an untenable position, um, scientifically, to say that this land wasn't inhabited by uh, Jews or Israelites, if you like, even before that time. I mean, we have writing now in several sites going back 10th century, 9th century BC, and even earlier, Hebrew being used. And again, they're at sites that the Bible describes as being uh, purely uh, sites that Israelites or Judeans inhabited. 
And if you look at where most of the we call the biblical heartland of ancient Israel lies, it's in the area of Samaria and Judea, um, the highlands, the highland country. This is where biblical Shiloh is. This place, this is being excavated by a massive team from the United States mainly every single year. They just had a dig this year and they're finding the time period of, of Eli, of Samuel, uh, they're finding the gate from that period. Um, and so, you know, this, this is in the biblical heartland of, of, of Judah. And, he, and so it, it's it, honestly, I don't even feel it justified to bring this up. Um, I mean, I th- think there was that UNESCO resolution, maybe two or three, uh, about actually it was about five or six years ago now, that wanted to claim that excavations in the old city of Jerusalem should stop. Um, and this was preposterous because, you know, you, this, is the, this is the very cradle of the, the nation of Israel um, in terms of, you know, the, the kingdom of Israel. And what we find there for not just the period of David and Solomon, but also going to the period of the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, going forward even to the period of the Roman revolt, of the Jewish revolt against the Romans starting in 60 and through to 70 in Jerusalem. I mean, this is the latest period that we're actually uncovering right now on the Ophel. We just had a, uh, an excavation with Professor Uzi Liebner. He's the head of the Institute of Archaeology at Hebrew University and Dr. Ori Pelik Barkat. These are experts for Second Temple Period Jerusalem and elsewhere. And we are finding destruction layer of the, the 70 AD, the 70 CE destruction layer. And inside that coins minted by Jewish rebels from 2000 years ago saying that this isn't, these coins are minted for the redemption of Zion, meaning we're going to come back to this land. This is our land. It will, we will be redeemed. We might lose this battle as they did in, in 70 in Jerusalem, but then the, the Jewish people came back and we're finding evidence of that everywhere you put the spade in the ground in Israel, in the West Bank, as they call it. We find it at every site, massive uh, remains from, from this per- period of, of Jewish or Israelite habitation. Well, we'll have to wrap it up there, Brent, but uh, as I say, I'd uh, really love to have you uh, back in front of a microphone again to uh, delve into this subject because I find it uh, absolutely fascinating uh, listening to you uh, today. Thank you very much for talking to us on Israel Connection. No worries. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) I've been speaking today with Brent Nagtakal, an ex-Aussie who works at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He works in collaboration with the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. On Israel's war with Hamas, the issue of proportionality in war has come up a few times and the remarks by Francesca Albanese, the UN Rapporteur for the Palestinian Territories, have been typical. Her sentiments were echoed by Jeffrey Robinson, a human rights barrister who has proposed the use of the International Criminal Court to make Israel to be held to account. Let's listen to uh, something which is right on this uh, on the button with this uh, issue. Former UN war crimes judge Jeffrey Robertson says Israel has a right and a duty under international law to hunt down the hostage takers. But there are limits. That must be done 
proportionately without itself breaking international law. And that means without killing innocent citizens by bombing them in a total war or by threatening to starve them by denying food and medicine and food and water. So these are war crimes, as the EU today rather belatedly condemned them, and, and simply two wrongs don't make a right. And there are many calls at the moment, particularly in the West, for Israel to have a proportionate response to the attacks against it by Hamas. Uh, Douglas, is that something that Israel should take into consideration? No, I've always thought that the whole idea of proportionality and conflict is absurd. It's something which I think Western countries and the UN, who always gang up on Israel whenever Israel is attacked, it's something that these people always obsess about only in the case of Israel. We in Western democracies, whenever we've had to wage war in the past, do not say, is this entirely proportionate in a response? Because proportionate is a abstract idea. What is proportionate in a conflict? Mm. Proportionate in this conflict would mean that uh, the response to the massacre of more than a thousand Israelis in cold blood by Hamas a couple of weeks ago should be responded to by Israel by sending Israeli forces to rape exactly the same number of women as Hamas raped and to decapitate exactly the mm. same number of babies. Hamas decapitated and to steal hundreds of Palestinians and hold them in dungeons and torture them as Hamas did. I mean, the, it's obscene to even think in these terms. And yet that's what proportionality would mean in this conflict. When people say proportionate, they, we, that the Israeli response must be proportionate. There are several things they're doing. One is that they are showing that they are utter ignoramuses because they know nothing about Israel's war since 1948 when its neighbors have repeatedly attempted to annihilate it. And they don't seem to realize that, as has very often been said, not least, I think, by Golda Meir, if uh, Hamas laid down its arms, if the Palestinian extremists, jihadists laid down their arms, there'd be peace. Whereas if Israel laid down its arms, there'd be no Jewish state. So when people say proportionate, proportionality about Israel, what they want is they, they want to signal, well, you do sort of have the right, maybe, to respond to the massacre, abduction and rape of your citizenry, maybe if you're Israel, but do reply with one hand tied behind your back, won't you? And don't win. That's what they're also saying. Whatever you do, don't win. Don't bring this, any of these wretched conflicts to a conclusion. Make sure you draw so that you end up stopping roughly at the point just before the conflict began. So you've been listening to uh, Douglas Murray, a British writer and political commentator, summing up uh, his views on uh, the question of proportionality in Israel's war with Hamas. Now, my next guest is Dr. Gedalia Afterman, the head of Asia Policy Program at the Abba Eben Institute for Diplomacy and Foreign Relations, which serves as a leading source of knowledge and expertise in innovative thinking and practice in the field of diplomacy and foreign relations in Israel and abroad. Now, welcome to the program, Gedalia. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. Yes, Gedalia, it's good to have you on the, on the program. It's been a, a while getting you on the air for one reason or another. Uh, 
unfortunately the war got in the way uh, besides other things and uh, and you uh, were involved with uh, work assignments but uh, we'll get to those in a minute uh, they didn't quite happen as you would have liked you used to work for DFAT the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade uh, in in Australia which has a reputation like the British Foreign Office for not being very friendly toward Israel was that your experience? Well, first I should say that uh, while I was working for DFAT, I did not work on issues related to Israel. <laughs> so I wasn't uh, very much involved in, in Middle East policy at all. But uh, I think with Israel, as, as uh, many of your listeners know, you either love it or you hate it. And that's probably true uh, for DFAT and other foreign services. But I can also tell you that from my experience with many of the Australian diplomats working here in Israel, uh, they've been very good, very friendly, uh, very positive towards Israel. So I would say that my experience with DFAT uh, has been quite positive. That's good to hear, because I've heard other stories. Now, what are the principal project tracks that you're involved with uh, as the head of Asia Policy Program at the Abba Eben Institute for Diplomacy and Foreign Relations? So... Um, as you mentioned, I used to work for, for DFAT, for the Australian Foreign Service, and after that I thought that I should come back to Israel and help formulating policy to help Israel position itself in Asia, in what I see as a very quickly changing geopolitical uh, landscape. So I've been working a lot, uh, uh, thinking about, of course, the rise of China, about Japan, about South Korea, about India and how Israel can position itself better. Over the last uh, few years, I've been focused a lot on how the Abraham Accords could help uh, Israel connect better both to the Middle East and to Asia, and I've been working uh, with the UAE uh, and other uh, friends in the region to see how we can use the Abraham Accords to connect Asia and the Middle East. So before you went back to Israel, did you actually have any uh, working relationship with uh, the Asian region? Yeah, I was working, uh, I used to be uh, a diplomat in, in Beijing and, and did other things as well. Right. Now, the Australian government has just given the OK for Landbridge, which is owned by Chinese billionaire Yi Ching, to continue with uh, the 99-year lease that's been granted to them. Now, I understand that you aren't really in a position to judge whether the decision by Australia's government is in line with Australia's national security concerns, but uh, does Israel potentially have uh, similar exposure to Chinese companies linked to the People's Republic of China? Well, so first I think it's it's interesting to see the change in the recent change in policy between Australia and China and, and the uh, the relative warming that we're seeing <laughs> uh, in the in recent months. I think uh, Israel has quite a bit that uh, it can learn from Australia in regards to its relationship uh, with China. Uh, here in Israel, China is involved in two ports, not one, the Haifa port and the Ashdod port. Haifa is involved in many infrastructure projects, uh, including the right rail, the, the light rail projects and others. Um, so, uh, so I think there's a lot to talk about in that sense. Strategically speaking, I think it would be a good idea for Israel and Australia to have a dialogue about what does, chi what does China's rise mean? What does China's role in the Middle East mean? Uh, what can Australia do in the new situation that we're seeing developing in the Middle East? So I think there needs to be much closer coordination uh, and, and much uh, deeper discussions between Australia and Israel on these issues. 
Now, Israel hasn't subscribed to the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, we once uh, had a document here in the state of Victoria where uh, the previous uh, Premier of the state of Victoria, who's now disappeared off the scene, uh, leaving a mess behind, um, had signed uh, potential arrangements to, uh, to, to go down that road. But uh, we aren't going down that road. We're going down a different road. But what uh, is going on? This... To... <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Gadalia. I think we need to understand that these, uh, these issues are quite complicated. You can see that Australia had a pretty clear stance against, against China, adopting a, you know, very much the American approach, but has been changing that in the other direction. I think Israel now is maybe going through or will go through what Australia had a few years ago, where China's response to the current war uh, has left a very uh, bad impression, a lot of disappointment and anger on the Israeli side. Uh, nevertheless, China is becoming a very uh, active and quite significant player in the Middle East. So that will also play a role uh, in, in calculations, I think. Go ahead. Yeah, the Chinese seems to be uh, having a bet each way uh, when it comes to uh, the Middle East. It's got its pause uh, in uh, quite a number of uh, countries and of course we we do know that uh, China was involved in uh, bringing uh, Iran uh, together with uh, with Saudi Arabia mm. now China and Russia have yeah. said China and Russia have said that they plan to work together for a two-state solution for Israel and the Palestinians now this plan of course has been uh, uh, slightly upset, of course, by uh, the, the war that's going on at the moment. So what do you think of the potential role of uh, Russia and China as arbiters in the Israel-Palestine dispute? So first, I think it's, it's uh, interesting to observe that there's a big contrast between the way the United States responded to the war and the way China did, right? On the one hand, we had President Biden sending two aircraft carriers to the region within days of the conflict, sending his leadership, including he himself came to Israel, supporting uh, Israel in a very, very strong way. And I think making a real difference geopolitically here in the region and making sure that other players like Hezbollah don't enter uh, the conflict. But China, on the other hand, has so far not even condemned Hamas uh, for the attack. And if you follow Chinese social media, in Chinese media, you see that it's not only attacking Israel, uh, but you have a rise in anti-Semitic uh, text and arguments against Jews. And as I said earlier, for Israel, that was very disappointing because there was always a sense behind the scenes, let's call it that way, that between Israel and Jewish people, I mean, Israel and China, China and the Jewish people, there is, despite differences, right, China will never be the U.S., but there is a positive sentiment and this kind of cynical use of the war uh, to advance anti-Semitic ideas and to attack Israel uh, is very disappointing on the Israeli perspective. Now, what role can China actually play? China is one of the only actors that can talk to all the different players, all the different actors in this region, right? The Chinese can talk to the Palestinians, they can talk to Iran, they can talk to Qatar, uh, they can talk to Turkey. Of course, they can talk to Israel. So theoretically speaking, uh, China can play a role. And in that sense, I think they can specifically play a role in securing the release of the 
hostages, the more than 200 hostages that Hamas kidnapped to Gaza. Whether or not it wants to do it is one issue. Uh, and the second issue is whether or not Israel will trust it as a mediator in this conflict following what I just described earlier. So when you say it could play a role, uh, in what respect could it uh, do that? I think that if China explains to the Iranians and to the Qatari, maybe to the to Saudi Arabia, that it's not in their interest, right? It's not in the regional interest uh, to hold these hostages. And the first step to de-escalating the situation should be the release of the hostages. That can be helpful because at the moment you have uh, an an effort to portray this as an Israeli issue, as an American issue, but forces that are not Western, especially if they have influence like China pushing this message, I think could put pressure uh, on Hamas uh, to release the hostages. And that should be a top priority. Yes, this issue of the hostages is unfortunately uh, striming Israel's uh, efforts to go into uh, Gaza and uh, and finally eradicate uh, Hamas. That's uh, apparent amongst other reasons, I suppose, that are preventing uh, Israel from uh, finishing the job. The The relationship between uh, China and the Palestinian Authority uh, is, is a curious one too, isn't it? Uh, one, one thing that... Uh, <laughs> it's just the way that uh, these political leaders uh, manage to put aside... Uh, what should be serious concerns for them just for the reasons of political expediency. That's uh, what's quite evident with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, who doesn't seem to uh, uh, care too much about uh, Chinese uh, oppression of its uh, Muslim constituents. Yeah, so I think think you exactly put your finger on it. So for China, China doesn't care not about the Palestinians and not about Israel. That should be very clear. China's stance uh, on the on the current war and in general on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict is basically focused on the United States. So China is using the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to target or to discredit the United States in the Middle East and in the Muslim world. One of the main reasons to do so is so it can get Muslim and Arab support for its policies in Xinjiang. So it's all uh, part of, of this picture. And Mahmoud Abbas, as, as you might know, Mahmoud Abbas visited Beijing uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago. And one of the things he did while he was there, he's, he came out publicly to support China's policies uh, in Xinjiang. So it's all part of this big picture uh, with China basically uh, positioning itself uh, and trying to gain credit vis-a-vis uh, the United States. Yeah, the UN uh, Security Council did have a, a vote on uh, the situation with the war. And Chinese actually uh, is uh, pushing for a ceasefire, isn't it, in the, uh, in the current uh, circumstances? It voted for a ceasefire. Absolutely, yeah. China is, will be, and we'll hear more of China calling for a ceasefire, uh, calling you know, for all sides to, to remain uh, cautious and calm. Uh, this is classic Chinese language, which basically means... Uh, it sounds good, but we're not going to do much, uh, and there's little risk uh, in it for us. I think the problem is for China in this current situation is that over the last few years, uh, China has been trying to position itself as a political player, as a strategic player in the Middle East, saying that it could in some way replace, at least politically, the United States. 
Now, if China does nothing now, then maybe we'll have to reconsider whether or not China is uh, as strong and as significant uh, as it says. Yeah, China's uh, supposed to be quite adamant uh, in terms of uh, its opposition to uh, terrorism. So uh, how does it rationalise uh, that viewpoint with uh, a quite uh, evident uh, display of terrorism coming from Hamas? So again, it's about superpower competition for China and it's about positioning itself in the region. So China is trying to, you know, read the opinions of the Arab leaders. It's actually, if you follow the situation closely, you'll see that in the last few days, China has been softening uh, its approach. Over the last uh, day or two, uh, they even said that Israel has the right to defend itself, uh, which is, uh, which is new. Uh, in that context, I think China might be realizing uh, that Hamas isn't very popular uh, in the Arab world uh, and is trying to adjust its position to stay relevant. But obviously, there's a lot of hypocrisy. It's clear that China should, could and must condemn uh, Hamas. Uh, as you said, I don't think there's any room for, for vagueness there. I think things should be very clear. Now, the war is uh, not just on the uh, southern front. Uh, Israel is uh, shaping up to potentially to have a conflict uh, on, the, on the Lebanese border with Hezbollah. Uh, China could um, play a role, couldn't it, in, uh, in tempering uh, Iran's involvement in uh, encouraging Hezbollah to go into action against Israel? Yeah, I mean, the most or one of the most important things for China is regional stability, right, in the Middle East. Now, if China feels that this risks its interests, then China can definitely explain to the Iranians and to the Lebanese uh, that this will be a big, uh, a big mistake. Now, the combination of the U.S. have putting, you know, military force, military capabilities in the region and sending very clear messages in China uh, explaining things uh, using economic uh, leverage uh, could potentially be uh, effective. I think there is a danger of this conflict becoming a regional one. And if it does, then this will be a completely different story from an Israeli perspective and from the region perspective. So I think efforts should be made to de-escalate. So are China and Russia totally aligned in their... uh views on dealing with uh, the Middle East situation? No, I don't think I don't think China and Russia are totally aligned uh, on much except perhaps on uh, Mm. opposing and attacking the United States. (laughs) But uh, China has its own uh, its own interest uh, and is managing its own foreign policy. Russia is weaker than it used to be in the Middle East. So I think a conversation can be had with China about playing a positive role. And again, I think rather than saying China can bring peace to the Middle East, uh, which isn't very realistic, I think we should uh, focus on something that's practical. And in that sense, China can play a practical role in securing the release of the more than 200 hostages in Gaza. That will be a good step. That will show us that China can do things, that China is more than just talk, that China uh, wants to help de-escalating the situation. Well, if China succeeded in doing that, uh, which would, of course, uh, give it uh, many kudos, that would um, uh, put uh, a lot of pressure on Israel not to proceed with its uh, assault on on Gaza because uh, 
it uh, had achieved uh, a major breakthrough and uh, China may want uh, some reward in return. Yeah, the question is what kind of reward? So I think uh, that's what you mentioned about uh, Israel is one side of the coin, but the other is that Israel will be able to operate without having to worry about killing its own people uh, on the ground. And basically the assumption is that once Israel enters Gaza, you won't be able to release those hostages. And 200 hostages is something that I think we shouldn't take for granted. I think that releasing them should be the number one priority. Uh, to start with. Now, regarding what China will ask in return, I think we should look at it regionally. As I told you before, I try to think about how the Abraham Accords and how the new uh, the new uh, geopolitical map uh, should be used and should be developed. I think China can play a role, for example, if we like, in rebuilding Gaza uh, in the future, uh, in playing you know in role in building infrastructure. All these things. If China uh, proves that it's an, a, a positive player, right, that it wants to help uh, in easing the situation, I think these are things that can be discussed. So we've been concentrating on uh, on China mainly in what we've been discussing at the moment, but uh, your uh, portfolio is a bit bigger than that. Uh, there are many other countries in, in Asia besides uh, China, but they're not uh, so prominent quite now. Now, you were you are um, dealing with other nations and I understand that uh, you're organising an international conference on the future of Israel, Japan, UAE relations following the Abraham Accords. Now that uh, that didn't go ahead, you've uh, just told me uh, earlier today. Uh, is that still going to go ahead at some stage? Absolutely. I mean, this is part of an effort that we've been leading over the last few years to create new trilateral cooperation between Israel, the UAE and Japan, and Israel, the UAE and South Korea, uh, to really create a new economic uh, and strategic sphere of cooperation. And by the way, I think Japan can also play a role in the current conflict, both in helping issues like the hostages, but also in creating uh, in creating the future, in, in, in rebuilding Gaza and doing other things that will be needed uh, here in the region. And if you follow the United States policy in the region, you'll see that over the last uh, year or so, there's been a push to create these new cross-regional partnerships. In, at the G20, uh, President Biden announced the India-Middle East Economic Corridor, which includes Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and India, and the United States, with the idea that Israel will join it as well. So I think there should be a push uh, for these new uh, like-minded grouping, including Israel, Japan, UAE, Saudi Arabia can be part of that in the future, South Korea, UAE, uh, and Israel. We already have the I2U2, which is Israel, India, UAE, and the United States. So we see a movement which I think is quite positive, um, uh, towards reshaping the Middle East through these new kind of partnerships. I think Australia, by the way, could be part of some of these initiatives and should be part of some of these initiatives. Uh, and in general, we need to understand that there is a push both uh, from the region outwards and from uh, the direction of the United States to connect Asia and the Middle East. Now, Obviously, the, this, the, the current conflict will probably slow things down a little bit, but I hope uh, that things will keep on track. So uh, I suppose you won't really be able to answer this, but uh, 
there's been uh, a bit of uh, uh, talk here in Australia about our Prime Minister actually going to Israel and showing some support for Israel in the in the current situation. He's in the US now, he's going to China shortly after. It uh, wouldn't be too hard for him just to uh, take a short uh, side trip uh, to Israel, but uh, he doesn't seem to be willing to do that. I think it's a good idea uh, for for the Prime Minister uh, to travel to Israel. I think Australia has always been one of Israel's closest friends uh, in the world, and uh, um, the situation in Israel or the impact of the October 7th uh, attack in Israel is uh, very deep. Uh, we haven't spoken about this much, but this is really uh, Israel's 9-11. Right? This has really uh, uh, affected and, and touched every person in Israel and is really changing uh, Israel's thinking about itself, about the world. I think Australia being a close friend, being supportive at this time, uh, is important. Yes, I certainly agree with you. So with this interview we've had today, um, which was delayed a little bit, like I said uh, the, the whole complexion of it uh, got changed because of uh, the war that has arisen. Do you have anything else that you want to say uh, before uh, we sign off, Gedalia, about uh, the current situation from your point of view? Just to say, uh, first of all, as I just mentioned, the situation is, uh, is very much still ongoing and the impact on Israel will be profound. Uh, but on the other hand, I think there's also opportunities looking at the future. And the hope is that once we uh, neutralize, once we get rid of Hamas, there could be a better future here in the region, including new partnerships with Saudi Arabia and other players. I think Australia should be uh, an active player in creating this new regional uh, future. I think Australia and Israel should do uh, much more together. We can talk about it maybe next time, uh, but some of the ideas that we've been talking about is how can Australia and Israel cooperate more uh, in a very changing, in a quickly changing uh, geopolitical landscape, both in Asia and the Middle East. So I hope we can also keep our optimism looking forward. So Australia comes into your portfolio, does it, in uh, in the, the policy area you work in? Is yeah, that Absolutely. Well, I, uh, I um, take your offer of uh, bringing you back at some stage again, uh, Gedalia. It's, uh, it would be great to, to talk again when uh, the, the dust settles and we can uh, look at how uh, we can emerge from this uh, terrible situation. Yeah, we should do it together. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bye. David. Bye. So that was uh, Dr. Gedalia Afterman. Uh, the, who's the head of Asia Policy Program at the Abba Eben Institute for Diplomacy and Foreign Relations. Before I go, I'd like to provide an update on what happened with the issue of the funding of Palestine National Day by the City of Melbourne. Last week on this show, I signalled that pro-Palestinian organisations had received a grant from the City of Melbourne, ostensibly for the staging of a culture fest. However, they decided to turn their event into a vigil for Gaza, with obvious political overtones that clearly disqualified them from utilising their grant. Fortunately, the word got to the Lord Mayor Sally Cap, who correctly pulled the plug on the Palestinians and their partners having a rally in Federation Square this week. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.